0: Hi, and welcome to Failurology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole.
1: And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, and only one of us has a dog.
0: Aw, little Maggie.
1: That's Nicole's dog.
0: (laughs) This week in engineering news, cladding fires. Again. Similar to the Grenfell Tower fire that we covered in episode four, these are unfortunately much more common than I had thought. Fire destroyed a high rise in Dalian, China on August 27th. That fire started on the 19th floor around four o'clock in the afternoon and quickly spread upward, burning for seven hours. There are 419 units in the building, and luckily there were no deaths or injuries reported. One of the signs that the fires are related to the cladding is that large sections of burning cladding fall off the building, which was witnessed in this fire. And then two days later, on August 29th, fire destroyed a 20-story tower in Milan, Italy. This one had quite a bit more information, and NFPA actually wrote a journal article that we'll link to in the website, which is at failureology.ca. NFPA being the National Fire Protection Association, which I have talked about on several episodes before. I kind of have a love for them. They make really cool codes.
1: A burning desire, if you will.
0: <laughs> yes, good one. So the fire consumed the entire outside of the building in just over three minutes. I read that two or three times because that sounds really fast. And I promise you, that's what the article said, which is crazy. There were no death or injuries reported. And there were about 70 units in the building. Luckily, this fire, as well as the one in China happened during the middle of the day. And there also was no shelter in place order at the time, which is what I think to be the biggest Two detriments to the Grenfell Tower fire, the fire broke out just before 1 a.m., and all of the residents were told to stay in their units, which I think, had it been during the day and everyone was told to evacuate, I think there would have been almost no deaths or, or you know, none at all, which would have been way better. The Milan Tower was built over 10 years ago, and interestingly, the frequency of cladding fires in large buildings has increased by seven times in the last three decades, there have been 59 cladding fires between 1990 and 2018, with 36 of those occurring after 2010. I also found a quote from Bridget Messerschmidt. She's the director of applied research at NFPA. And she says, quote, it is important to recognize that there is an opportunity to learn from failures and even successes and develop strategies based on real world fire incidents. The education of stakeholders, growth from previous failures, And quantification of this global issue demand much more data than are currently available today, which I just thought was really interesting how she talks about learning for learning what we know from all of the fires, the cladding fires that have happened to date and using those to help correct buildings going forward, either new construction or repairing some existing buildings. Um, One thing I learned while researching the Grenfell Tower fire, is there are hundreds of combustible cladded buildings in the UK. And it's also really common in other places in Europe, such as Italy, as well as the United Arab Emirates has had a few cladding fires. Australia's had a few cladding fires. Uh, I would say it's probably common anywhere that the National Fire Protection Association isn't widely adopted. And And I say that because they have a pretty extensive code section dedicated to cladding or or building envelope. And they have a pretty detailed requirement for how cladding testing needs to be completed to test the assembly and what's required to do that. And to my knowledge, all jurisdictions in Canada and the United States have adopted NFPA and are required to follow it, which is why we don't see these types of fires here, at least to my knowledge.
1: So is that an uptake on on NFPA cladding specifications, is that something that is happening more and more in, in, you know, countries that, that are starting to see more development or more, you know, high rise development, or is that something that you think will just kind of be, you know, adopted in, in developed nations and it it won't really progress beyond developed nations.
0: So I think some nations are making their own codes. So I think the UK is trying to make their own version, which I mean, fine. If you want to, Uh, to me, just adopt the NFPA code section. I think the code section on cladding is 36 pages. It's not hundreds and hundreds of pages. It would take you an hour to read it all. It's And it's written in mostly plain language. I would say they try to do a really good job at making their codes clear to follow. Uh, so what So what happens in Canada, at least, is so we get a building code. And inside the building code, there's a table and it says well, we want you to use this version of the plumbing code and we want you to use this version of this code and this version of that code. And so I could open up the Alberta building code and I could go to the NFPA section. I can't remember the number right now. And it would tell me which year I need to follow. Uh, and then I would, could go to an NFPA and I can pull up that year. So as far as that's concerned, it would be pretty straightforward for other countries to say this standard is being adopted, assuming they have a building inspections or a a building and development services group within those jurisdictions. I think the biggest part really is education. So it's one thing to say you need to follow this code, but it's a whole another thing entirely to enforce it, to make sure that contractors and you know design parties all know what the risks are and what's required and what types of things they have to use. Because this this cladding, this combustible cladding is permitted on low rise. So it's allowed on buildings, I think, up to four storeys. I think I don't do building envelope mechanical only. So I am speaking outside of my area of expertise, but yeah, I believe you can use it on, on low rise, which would be up to four stories typically. So, so you could use it on a house or an apartment building, a short apartment building. But the other thing is the manufacturers don't recommend it being used on towers of a specific height. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of things at play, but I think education and spreading the word and talking about it is what's going to help drive change because you know, the consultants have the power to say, no, you can't use this product. And yes, you're going to get owners who are pushing for it because it's probably cheaper, but you can push back against them and say, I cannot sign off on this product. This product does not meet the requirements. This is poor engineering practice. And so I'm hoping the more we talk about it and the more we educate each other, the more that will happen and the less of these fires there are. But we also have probably thousands of buildings that need to have cladding replaced.
1: Or, or some sort of retrofit on the cladding. Because this certainly seems to be an issue that, or you know, an, an incident that's come up you know, much more frequently in the last, you know, couple years. But yeah, there'll be a substantial cost, I guess, on the, on the retrofit of existing buildings that, uh, you know, have this, this type of cladding on them. So it'll be interesting to see if cladding fires continue to happen in, you know, various nations around the world that don't have NFPA code, or if various nations that were having cladding fires start to adopt NFPA codes or, or similar codes or develop their own code to mitigate or or minimize the possibility of of cladding fires which which impact a substantial amount of people if if we're talking about 15 20 30 story high-rise towers.
0: Yeah, so I I think it's yeah, it's really important to change the cladding if it's existed if it's already been installed on the building and and you know it's combustible it's that's really important to get changed it's not quite so cut and dry but what i think you might start seeing if not already is insurance companies requiring you to submit information on the type of cladding you're using and then either charging you a higher premium or refusing to insure you if you have combustible cladding that's probably the way we're going to see change
1: yeah which i think are all reasonable responses you know on the insurance side of things if if Building owners or developers aren't replacing their existing cladding with, with a much more, you know, flame resistant or fire resistant, you know, coating that meets NFPA standards. But this, this sounds like something that we're just going to have to, I, I guess, keep monitoring over time and see if there are, you know, any changes or an increase or a decrease, you know, hopefully a decrease in, in the amount of, of cladding related fires.
0: Yeah, I, I will say I recognize that almost all of these are residential condo buildings. So they are owned by the people that live in them. And the cost of a special assessment to replace cladding is likely far beyond what any one condo owner can afford to pay for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like, I get that. And so I think that there's a responsibility of jurisdictions to step in and help these people. These people didn't know they were getting combustible cladding. If you would told them that, they probably would have said, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they're hiring consultants and the city or the jurisdictions are there to protect them. You know, it's, it's just really unfortunate. So, I'm hoping that, yeah, we can. Hoping it stops because it's getting a bit ridiculous. Tired of washing dishes?
1: Dishwasher broken.
0: Flip the dishes over. There's a second side to those.
1: At least the plates.
0: We can't help you out with the bowls. But if it's the morning and you have no bowls, you're already in a bad spot if you wanted cereal.
1: Use a mug or something. You're probably still half asleep anyway. Who's going to judge you for eating cereal out of a mug?
0: We got your back. Flip the dishes.
1: Yeah, and on that note, we should probably start talking about this week's episode, yeah. which is about the Montreal Olympic Stadium. So the Montreal Olympic Stadium in Montreal, Quebec, Canada is also referred to as the Big O or the Big O, in reference to the ridiculous cost overruns that occurred during the course of the project.
0: How much over budget was it?
1: Oh... times over budget, which I would like to point out is substantially more over budget than any of my projects have ever been.
0: Same. Yeah, same. 19.9 times over budget. That's that's a lot over budget that got out of control. That's a runaway train.
1: I think even with scope changes and change orders, I don't even think I've had projects that have been 20 times over the original budget.
0: That's yeah, that's bad. That's embarrassing. So this was supposed to be the first self-financed Olympic Games, but it took them 30 years to pay off after the Games had finished. This one has it all. Poor planning, fraud, corruption, and a freewheeling architect with a fixed deadline and no consequences for cost overruns.
1: What could go wrong? Let's find out.
0: The Montreal Olympic Stadium was supposed to be built for the 1976 Olympic Games. Montreal won the right to host the Games in 1970 over competing bids from Moscow and LA. Moscow ended up hosting the Summer Olympics in 1980 and LA in 1984. Montreal, located in Canada, was seen as a neutral site between both sides of the Cold War. The games were to be solely funded by the city of Montreal, and they were not expecting to need any outside financing. This is probably their first mistake. Jean Drapeau was the mayor of Montreal at the time, and he had become enamored with architect Roger Talabert's Parc de Princes in Paris. Talabert is selected as the architect without any competitive bid process. There's your second mistake. The site has a tower located next to the stadium, which is intended to support the roof and is the tallest inclined tower in the world with an angle of elevation of 45 degrees and a height of 175 meters. Underneath the tower, you'll find the Olympic swimming pool and what used to be the Olympic Velodrome, which is an indoor bicycle track. The Velodrome has since been converted to the Montreal Biodrome, which is an indoor nature museum. The stadium is located in Masonive Park on the island of Montreal. Did you know it's an island?
1: I did. It's also the most populous island in Canada, which I learned on Jeopardy. So thanks, Jeopardy. The Big O has a maximum seating capacity of just over 69,000 seats and is the largest stadium in Canada. The capacity of 69,000 is just for sporting events. For concerts and other events, it can expand to 78,000 people. So just for reference, McMahon Stadium in Calgary, where Nicole and I live, and the Calgary Stampeders of the Canadian Football League play, is the fifth on the list of, of stadium capacity, of arena capacity, after the Edmonton Elks, the BC Lions, and the Toronto Blue Jays. The Big O hosted the Montreal Alouettes, the Montreal Impact, and the Montreal Expos, who have since moved to Washington to become the Washington Nationals. It is sometimes used for events with large capacity or when the weather restricts outdoor play, but hasn't had a main tenant since 2004 when the expos left for Washington. So the velodrome that Nicole talked about before is a steeply banked oval indoor cycling facility that's used for indoor bike racing, and Montreal had committed to hosting the World Cycling Championships in 1974 and needed a suitable velodrome facility to host this, so they came up with the that was going to be attached to olympic stadium so this was originally designed in metric and constructed in imperial units of measurement
0: that's never been an issue before right
1: never not not at all so i probably not going to be an issue in this one
0: so this one is because it was designed in paris and built in canada and back in the 70s i don't know about you brian well You still use the Imperial system quite a bit. My parents used it and and growing up so close to Detroit, I grew up using Imperial a lot as well. Uh, But all of our current, my current work is in metric almost always except for specific clients. But then everyone talks in Imperial. So I'm constantly flipping back and forth. But luckily, we've come to a system. So Four inches is 100 millimeters. And yes, four inches exactly is, I think, 104 millimeters, but we just say 100 and it means four. like we've kind of come up with a system to transfer back and forth. But yeah, I'm constantly in between units. It's uh, It keeps you on your toes, that's for sure.
1: I, uh, I, I work quite a bit between both units of measurement. Um, and I also still don't know to this day how tall I am in centimeters or in meters. I have no idea how tall I am in meters and centimeters.
0: I think it says on your driver's license in centimeters.
1: It might. I think it does, but I, I still don't know what that number is unless I look at it. Fair enough. Back to the velodrome though. The bidding on the velodrome was based on semi-complete plans and it was the first structure awarded um, in, a, in a whole series of, of the Olympic Stadium project.
0: So I've I've lost count of how many mistakes they've made, but Bidding on incomplete drawings is another one to add to the list.
1: Yeah, they're they're up to quite a few at this point. So so things will likely go wrong on this project, and we haven't even broken ground on the project. This is still in the in the bidding stage of things, and then and then things take a turn for the worse, or maybe they just don't even really take a turn. So they they waste so much time in this process that. All of the subsequent structures of, of the Olympic Stadium project have to be awarded directly to contractors with no time for bidding.
0: That's also never been an issue, right?
1: Nope, not at all. Never before. Hasn't been an issue. So the velodrome construction, it, it's supposed to look like a cycling helmet, or at least a cycling helmet from back in the, in the mid-70s when, when this was designed. So it's got a very unique design to it that ultimately would prove to be very costly and incredibly difficult to engineer. And the reason it was so difficult to engineer was that the the beams that they were going to use, the concrete beams, were fairly horizontal. They weren't they weren't vertical. They were more horizontal, so they they had a substantial horizontal thrust load.
0: They were arches, right, to make the hel- like the ribs in the helmet.
1: Exactly, yeah they they were there were these very shallow arches, and I think at a maximum they got up to a, a height of twenty eight meters. So not super tall for for a building. You know, typically a story is. Two and a half meters is a is a story, three meters.
0: Three meters is a story, typically, yeah.
1: So for this building, we're we're looking at something that's uh, you know between nine and uh, nine and ten stories tall, which which isn't that substantial for for a structure like this. One of the arches is placed on incredibly rocky subsoil, and it's not the subsoil is not strong enough to support the arch. So to mitigate, you know, any horizontal movement of the arch, they decide to drive some tendons into the ground and grout which has a huge impact on the project budget and the project schedule, with the foundations costing almost 60% of the total project budget. And like we mentioned, if the arches were a little bit higher, this would have been significantly reduced, and it could have possibly been mitigated entirely.
0: And they questioned that, and the architect refused to consider it, which I feel like that should have been... That was your... Well, one of your earlier opportunities to rein that in before it got out of control.
1: Yeah. And, and this is a fairly common theme that we see throughout this project, kind of like the, the grandeur of this project. There's no mitigation for, for cost savings. There's, there's no attempt at cost savings throughout this project.
0: Well, there's also no accountability put on the consultant team to provide a reasonable project in budget. It sounds like they're just given free reign to do whatever they want. And as long as it looks nice, no one cares. And they don't even seem to care if it's constructible. I mean, that's kind of, you know, engineering consulting 101. It's, you can make it as pretty as you want. If they can't build it, it doesn't matter because it's never going to get built, which is kind of what happened here.
1: And I think part of that, the uh, the grandeur of the of the Olympics, I think, plays into that too, where it's a, you know, it's a fixed date event. It has to, the building has to be constructed or at least in a usable state by the start of the Olympics. And the entire world is going to see this facility, and the city, so I feel a lot of people in Olympic building design go for broke, right? They're trying to make a a really cool looking building that the the entire world will appreciate. And unfortunately, Talibair and his construction team, they miss the opening of the World Cycling Championship. The, The entire reason, or one of the reasons, the Velodrome was going to be constructed was to have the championship, and they don't even get the building built on time. So instead, they Put together a temporary facility at the university. So we're we're at 1974 for the World Cycling Championship. The Olympics are two years away, and they haven't built the velodrome yet. So they decide they're gonna they're gonna hurry this along and and get things built. The Olympics are an impending deadline, so they they switch over to cost plus arrangements due to the tight schedule of this. So overtime is fine have to get it done on time. And overtime and, and labor strikes take up almost 100% of the original budget. And the velodrome comes in at six times the original budget.
0: Now, I do, I do want to say for those that don't work in the construction industry, so cost plus would mean that let's say to put something in to install a piece of equipment, to buy that equipment and install it would cost the contractor $10,000. So they'll say, okay, we're going to charge you $10,000 and then we're going to add on. Usually there's a fixed percentage, so it's 5% or 10% or whatever it's agreed upon. So that's so they charge you their cost plus their markup.
1: It's great for contractors since they have a guaranteed profit on what they do. It's generally not great for project management and the overall project budget. There's, uh, There's some opportunities in there that people sometimes take advantage of.
0: I do want to point out six times the original budget, but in their defense, the budget was likely incorrect because the budget was based on incomplete drawings because they tendered an incomplete set. So the building was likely never going to cost what they budgeted it to cost because they didn't have all the details to price it properly, um, which, I mean, unfortunately happens. So six times the original budget, but I don't think the original budget was all that accurate. So that it's just a food for thought.
1: So it's probably not an unreasonable cost overrun here.
0: I would say they were two to three times the original budget, probably, would be my guess.
1: Or two to three times the original budget if they had a complete set of drawings to bid on it. And and maybe some more geotech information as well. Because I I feel back in in the the mid-70s, we probably weren't as good at geotech analysis as what we are now.
0: Yeah, and that's definitely something that I came across in researching was, was kind of calling out the geotech Details and information, and they were not clear enough. Also, where's the project manager? It's the architect does not run the job. I mean, they do from the consultant side, but where's the city project manager saying, you know, hold up, this isn't working, we need to change something? You know, it just seems so silly.
1: I mean, sitting around for a couple years probably didn't help the Modi.
0: No, no, it definitely wasted some time. On to the stadium. The mayor of Montreal wanted to build a covered stadium with hopes of bringing a major league baseball team back to Montreal. A lot of the stadiums we have in Canada are outside. Obviously not hockey, well, although we call those arenas, but most of the football stadiums are. So try watching a football game in minus 20 degrees Celsius. It's not a great time. Beer helps, though.
1: I can confirm both of those things.
0: They used the same architect as they did for the Valodrome, Roger Taliber, and they hired him without contest again. The mayor had been enamored with a pre- previous project he completed in Paris. Um, we had mentioned this before. That project was the Parc de Princes. That project was 300% over budget. So there was clearly a pattern here. And the intent was to build a stadium with a retractable roof using cables suspended from this tower. Now, because of the issues they had on the velodrome, because of the... Inability to get things properly tendered, either due to incomplete drawing packages or lack of time, because we're running out of time right now, they just awarded the stadium to the same contractor that they gave the velodrome to, which is another mistake for a couple reasons. One, you didn't properly tender it. Yes, there were limitations and maybe you couldn't. Fine. Two, you already know this contractor has issues because of the velodrome. You've already been through, you've already been down that road. And, And, you know, maybe it's a case of the devil you know versus the devil you don't. But you already know this contractor has not been overly successful on your project. And the third reason why this is a bad idea is because... Every contractor has a limit to how much work they can take on. And, and I don't know this specific contractor and what their capacity would be, but the velodrome is a pretty big project and the stadium is an even bigger project. And could this firm actually handle two really, really huge projects on a really, really tight deadline and complete them successfully? I mean, chances are no. And they didn't also. So just lots of bad decisions. Lots of bad decisions.
1: Olympic Stadium was designed to be an elliptical dome with a retractable fabric roof. The dome was designed to use precast complex ribs, which Taliber loved in his designs, with each pair of ribs being a different size. So this results in alignment and post-tensioning complications. The ribs were precast, put into place, held in place during construction, then post-tensioned together. At one point during construction, there were 200 cranes working on this project, which led to significant issues with scheduling and labor and even just the ability to build this project. There were too many cranes that work couldn't get done.
0: So I just want to recap that for a second because I think this is pretty major. This building structure is held up by these ribs. And several of these ribs are, they're they're all different sizes except for their match. You know, one rib and its matching pair are the same size, but a mirror of each other, but the rest... The rest of them are all different sizes. They built their ribs. They put them in place. They had to hold them in place with cranes. And then they have to post-tension them all together at the same time. It doesn't work. And and that's why they needed 200 cranes. Because they had to get cranes to hold all of these ribs in perfect place so that they could tension them together before they could go any further. It's a, it's a horrible design. It's not constructible. This is a bad idea.
1: It, it's a terrible idea. So in addition to the cranes that are holding the roof truss pieces up or the the ribs of the roof up there's cranes that are there to lift materials and people and scaffolding pieces so there's a lot of cranes working on this project that is already years behind schedule months if not years behind schedule and the cranes are getting in the way probably of each other and they're getting in the way of people's ability to do work because there's no room because there's cranes in the way So due to all these different shapes of the ribs that Nicole mentioned, misalignment, shockingly, was common between all of them.
0: Well, also, how do you hold this rib in place with a crane? It doesn't work. Like you can't, it would be, if you could get the rib in position and then put some kind of support structure in to hold the rib in place while you got the next rib in, that's one thing. But you're, I mean, cranes are not really sturdy. They're, I mean... This is a really oversimplification, but it's a, you're using like a string to hold a big stick in the air. Do you think the stick's not going to swing? It doesn't, it's, this is silly. Can't believe. So many.
1: There's a lot of complications. And remember, the Olympics, the Olympics are coming, not the British this Ugh. time, but the Olympics are coming. So they need to get this built. And then they run into this thing that we have in Canada called winter.
0: Winter? What's that?
1: It's the coldest season of the year in the Northern Hemisphere from December to January. And in the southern hemisphere, from June to August. But that's not important right now.
0: December to January is a fallacy, Brian. It's much longer than that.
1: Yeah, doesn't it normally last from like September until June, and then we get two months of bad sledding or road construction, depending on what part of the world you're in?
0: Yeah, Calgary is is eight months of winter and then road construction. We don't have we don't have other seasons. It's just winter and road construction. It's not that bad. Uh, sometimes it's bad.
1: It's bad. It's bad.
0: It depends how many weeks of minus forty we get, and yes, minus forty is a thing, and minus forty is the same in Celsius and Fahrenheit, which is a fun fact. And it's cold. It's very, very cold. I don't like it.
1: But it's a dry cold, so apparently it's better.
0: It's better, but it's not good. Better marginally. We saw, we got on a real sidetrack.
1: Very sidetrack. It, it happens all the time. And montreal during this project has issues with some of the coldest winters that they've experienced in a significant period of time and water runs into the rib post tension ducts and freezes and water when it freezes expands which causes a whole bunch of issues within these ducts in the ribs additionally the design of the stadium did not leave room for actual construction like we mentioned there is no room for interior scaffolding forcing construction employees to resort to using cranes to hold the ribs and the workers and the materials and the tools and at one point of construction like we mentioned there's over 200 cranes on the project site the expected completion date was 1972 which doesn't happen
0: i think they started in 1972
1: well they were optimistic when this when this first went out to uh, went out to award construction workers strike was headed by andre Desjardins, and it kept the site in anarchy until Desjardins was bought off in 1972 by the premier of Quebec. Further delays caused by Televair's refusal to adjust materials or his vision under escalating cost of materials lead to further delays. Televair, as a quote, says, talking about cost, that's all Canadians and Americans talk about. Money, money, money. It doesn't interest me at all. Which I think is pretty apparent.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we get it. Thanks for coming out.
1: The original project manager also seemed incapable of handling some of the most basic construction tasks throughout the project.
0: Yeah, let's give him a huge stadium.
1: At all levels of this project, things are going not great. In fact, you could say they're going terribly. So we're up to 1975 and costs, shockingly, are out of control.
0: I'm shocked. I can't believe it. Out of control, you say?
1: That's like the third or fourth time we've been shocked at something in this. So the province of Quebec decides to take the project away from Montreal. Talaver and Drapeau were removed from the project. And the province tells contractors, if they don't speed up, they will shut down the project and move the games elsewhere. Productivity increases. Yeah, that's right. Productivity increases 500%.
0: Which really tells you how out of control this was. These contractors were running the show and they were just charging them for whatever they wanted. And the province came in and said, yeah, we're done with this and the contractors are like, we better get ourselves together. And productivity increased 500%. That's insane. It's insane.
1: That's like being able to do a normal 8-hour workday or normal 40-hour work week in in one day. That's that's the level of of productivity increase that we're looking at here, which is which is phenomenal.
0: Yeah. Well, except that they were doing a week's worth of work over a month. And then they now they're doing a week's worth of work in a week. They didn't, they didn't increase productivity beyond standard. They just brought it back up to like a satisfactory level.
1: And unfortunately that still isn't enough to finish the Olympic stadium for the 1976 Olympics. When the Olympics are happening, there's still construction related activities that are going on in the stadium. It doesn't have a roof on it. There's still various things that need to be configured and hooked up and it, it, it's barely functional for the 1976 Olympics.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about post-Olympics. So the roof materials sat in a warehouse in Marseille until 1982. The tower and the roof were not complete until 1987. So that's 11 years after the Olympics. The Kevlar roof retraction, which was designed and built by Lavalin, was completed in 1988, but could not be used in winds above 40 kilometers per hour, and... In all, it only opened and closed 88 times. Construction resumed after the Olympics, and a multi-story observatory was added, which is accessible via an inclined elevator, and that opened in 1987. And actually, this is kind of cool. The elevator travels up the outside of the tower. The elevator cab itself sits straight up, but it goes up the, the inclined tower, so... Um, You're not on an incline when you're riding in it, but I still think that would be kind of cool to ride in because you you probably get some pretty cool views riding up the tower. So we've talked a lot about costs. We know that it's over. Let's talk about some numbers. So in 1970, when this project first came to fruition, they thought it would only cost $134 million to construct. And by the time it opened, which remember, wasn't even a completed stadium, it had cost $1.1 billion. Now this is all Canadian dollars. The province of Quebec added a tobacco tax in May 1976 to try and make some of this money back. Once they paid off the building, the ownership would transfer to the city of Montreal. This didn't happen until 2006, 30 years after they added the tax, and two years after the Expos left. All said and done, repairs, renovations, construction, interest, and inflation— The stadium cost $1.61 billion. At that time, the only stadium that cost more was Wembley Stadium in London. This list of expensive stadiums has since expanded, and I believe the Big O is about fifth on the list of most expensive stadiums in the world. The stadium can generate about $20 million in revenue in an average year and $50 million for large events like the Grey Cup. For you non-Canadians out there, the Grey Cup is our Canadian Football League Finals, football being the American style. So it's like the Canadian Super Bowl, but the commercials aren't as good.
1: We're going to give a summary of the issues that impact the Montreal Olympic Stadium from pre-construction all the way up until really the present time. Some of the stuff we've talked about a little bit before, some of it we haven't. One of the things we did talk about was the Olympics coming and going, and the stadium not being completed. In the early 80s, construction on the tower, on the incline tower, resumes. In August of 1986, explosions and fire in the unfinished tower interrupt a Montreal Expos game. Nobody's injured, but the game is rescheduled. Also in 1986, a large chunk of the tower falls onto the playing field during an Expos game.
0: Like, imagine, you're at a baseball game, and you're just hanging out you're watching a baseball game you're drinking beer eating hot dogs
1: being bored eating hot dogs whatever you do at a baseball game
0: yeah and a chunk of concrete just lands on the field I mind-blowing I would have I would leave I would have to leave and I would probably never go back
1: does baseball even have a rule for something like that happening like if if it had impacted the, the play of the game like what would happen if if coincidentally the chunk wound up hitting a ball that was in play like Anyway, concrete falling, concrete falling at any time off buildings is not, is not something that you want happening.
0: I know that Batball is steeped rich in tradition, but I think in this circumstance, safety overrules their tradition.
1: Could be, could be, but you never know. They, they, they may have a rule for it.
0: I this. think they it just stopped the game. may
1: have happened in the past. Foul ball. If anyone knows actually what would happen, please let us know through all of our, our contact methods that we'll, we'll mention at the end of this episode. And then in April of 87, of 1987, the Kevlar roof is completed and installed, which is only 10 years later than planned. Only 10. Better late than never, right? Better late than never.
0: At this point, I think never would have been better. Wait, You just wait. We're getting getting—we're just getting started here. This roof has lots of problems.
1: There's a lot of things that, that I still have to mention.
0: Yeah. like So we do these failures and they, they just keep going and going. And you're like, how can there be more failures? And this one is... Really bad.
1: We're not even halfway through the list of issues, of ongoing issues.
0: No, we're just getting started.
1: June of 1989. The roof lining rips during a tractor pull event, forcing the evacuation of about 8,000 people.
0: Yes, tractor pulls are things we do in Canada.
1: 8,000 people who attend a tractor pull event is a lot more people than what I thought would attend a tractor pull event.
0: Okay, how do they get the tractors into downtown Montreal? Do do you think they drive them? Because in Alberta, they just drive them down the road. Do you think they do that in Montreal? Probably not. They probably have to put them on trailers.
1: No, I, I think they probably trailer them in there. June of 1991, the roof tears during a windstorm, leaving a gaping hole of 30 meters by 15 meters. In 1991, to make the stadium more appealing to baseball, 12,000 seats are removed and home plate is moved closer to the stands. In September of 1991, a 55 ton beam crashes to the ground, closing the stadium for 94 days. No one's hurt but the Expos have to move their final 13 home games of the season elsewhere. 1992 Expo season is at risk until the stadium is certified safe, which eventually happens, but it took longer than it normally would because the roof was badly ripped in a June windstorm. And I think that's a good decision. They decide to keep the roof closed during the entirety of that season.
0: In August of 1992, a riot erupts at a Guns N' Roses concert when lead singer Axl Rose ends the concert after just 55 minutes. Eight of 300-odd police officers called to the scene receive minor injuries and clashes with rock and bottle-throwing rioters who use everything from uprooted street lamps to metal barriers to smash windows. So this isn't necessarily related to the building, but it is an interesting fact.
1: Sounds like it wasn't Paradise City.
0: Hey, that's a Guns N' Roses song. In January of 1994, an interior wall collapses. Luckily, again, no one was hurt. January of 1998, ice damages the stadium roof, sending snow and water onto the floor and forcing the cancellation of two Rolling Stones concerts.
1: Well, I guess you can't always get what you want.
0: Hey, that's a Rolling Stones song. May 1998- The Kevlar roof is removed and sold for $1 to a company specializing in research and development of industrial machinery. The stadium was open air for the 1998 season. At the end of 1998, a $26 million non-retractable opaque roof was installed. In January of 1999, so months later, A 350 meter squared section of the nine month old roof tears and pieces rain down along with ice and snow on 200 people preparing for an auto show. Five people were slightly injured from this incident.
1: There's a lot of roof incidents that happen in this project. First of all, they don't have a roof. And then when they do have a roof, they have pieces that fall off of the roof.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost like the roof isn't built for snow or wind or rain or weather of any kind. In a city that gets a lot of all of those.
1: I feel those are important characteristics for a roof.
0: Minor details. So they get an idea, and I actually don't think this is a terrible idea. It seems expensive and silly, but they decide that if they install pipes underneath the roof, it'll help melt the snow and they won't get as much snow building up on the roof and they should have less tears and collapses. There ended up being a few lawsuits between the roof manufacturer and who was also the designer and the contractor. And ultimately, the contractor won, but that lawsuit process took about 10 years. In 2009, a report deemed the roof unsafe during heavy rainfall or more than 8 centimeters of snow. In fact, the roof ripped 7,453 times in a 10-year span between 2007 and 2017.
1: That's a lot of roof ripping. That's 750 times a year.
0: That's a lot of rips. In April 2012, a concrete slab fell from the ceiling of the underground parking facility. Luckily, again, no one was injured. So Montreal's been trying to get a new roof on the stadium since 2009. But they keep flipping back and forth between retractable and non-retractable. Obviously, the original intent was to have a retractable roof. But it comes with a lot of risks that they clearly haven't been able to overcome based on past experience. And so... I think they, co- I would assume they feel like they're settling by going with a non-retractable or a, a fixed roof. They've even talked about demolishing the stadium, but that was estimated to be two to three times the cost to a new roof. And I think, I think the Montreal wants to keep the stadium. This is kind of a, a landmark for the city. And so I, I think they want to do what they can to keep it.
1: it it's certainly an iconic part of the, the Montreal skyline.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I get, I get that. I mean, it's been there for 50 years at this point, almost. Right. So, so I, I understand kind of. The new roof, though, has a price tag of $250 million, and it's not going to be completed until 2024. I did find reference to a study on whether or not they would build a retractable roof, but uh, from what I've been able to gather, the new roof will not be a retractable. One of the biggest challenges is that they're not allowed to impact the aesthetic of the building because of Tala Bear's vision and the original design, which uh, I think is silly for two reasons. One is that you're still allowing the architect who designed this unconstructible building 40 years ago, he's still controlling the design of it. And two, I think time has demonstrated that the aesthetic doesn't, isn't functional. It doesn't work. You can't put a roof on here. That's functional. And perhaps there's a way to modify the aesthetic slightly, keep the same intent, but get a functional roof that that works. I don't know. Maybe I'm asking too much. Maybe I'm being ridiculous. But I think you could... To me, I would change the aesthetic at least a little bit to get something that works. This doesn't work. How many more roofs do you want to put on here?
1: Yeah. And and it's one of the issues. And the roof, it's a really cool looking roof on the the building. All the cables that would control the retracting of the roof um, were hung from the inclined tower. So it was a really neat concept. It's just really, really hard to execute well.
0: Yeah. I mean... BC Place has a retractable roof, and it's functional. That's in Vancouver.
1: Rogers Centre in in Toronto, where the Blue Jays play, has a retractable roof. There's certainly retractable roof stadiums um, in North America and around the world that work very well. Unfortunately, the design for Montreal's Olympic Stadium doesn't lend itself to working that well.
0: Yeah, I also wonder, you know, is fabric the right choice? Again, I'm I'm not a structural engineer, so I can't answer all these questions. I have I have questions I don't have answers. But is fabric the right choice? I'm sure it's lighter, and so that's why they use it. But that's part of why they have so many problems with wind and water. It's because it doesn't. It's not. They can't slope it properly because it has low points and it moves in the wind. And that's why they have all. That's a lot of the reason they have all these issues. And they can't. You know, they can't get proper drainage, and and it's just kind of flapping around in the wind. And so something that's you know got maybe a little bit more built up in the middle so that it, the water can shed off of the 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 fabric or whatever it is i think that would make a big improvement but yeah maybe fabric's not the right choice i don't, I don't really know
1: yeah and and the olympic stadium is not the only fabric covered uh stadium that that's had issues with you know weather related elements or you know ripping and tearing of the of the roof structure so yeah maybe maybe fabric wasn't the right choice for this and a and a more permanent you know solution with steel or um you know a more modern material would have would have been the better choice but i but i also feel that the really liked the design and and there was no pushing him off of, of the design that he'd chosen and the vision that he'd chosen for montreal olympic stadium
0: yeah i'm not saying it's not a great vision i'm just saying it's not functional and i mean function over form is is how i operate if it doesn't work i don't care what it looks like it doesn't work
1: but sometimes the aesthetic's really nice as long as it functions.
0: Right, but it needs to function. And, and, and it doesn't. It's like a, I don't know, you could build the prettiest stadium you want, but it doesn't work, so it's no good to me. I don't know, maybe I'm being too harsh.
1: I'm sure I'm sure that we'll talk about the form versus function on on <laughs> yeah. future episodes of failureology. So, there you have it. The Montreal Olympic Stadium, the first self-financed Olympic games that were paid off 30 years after the games finished. This failure had poor planning, fraud, corruption, and a freewheeling architect with a fixed deadline and no consequences for cost overruns. And over 45 years later, Montreal is still paying for it. Literally.
0: For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failurology so more people can find it. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at failureology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening, and tune into the next episode where we'll take a deep look into the Arecibo Telescope. Bye everyone, talk soon.